Okay, so um, Isaiah 66, um, we finally come to the end of Isaiah. I'm thinking that I might go back and look at just a few passages in a little more detail, but um, I'm not sure of that right now. But I'm trying to figure out where we should go next. And so I might just look at a a few passages in Isaiah that I think I could give a little more uh, content to. So um, if you have any suggestions uh, about where to go next, just let me know. I'll be glad to uh, uh, bring them to the session and see what they think, okay? Well, Isaiah 66 describes the final judgment and the consummation of all things, bringing in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, There are two curious points, one that we're quite familiar with, and the other is the other one should at least cause us to do some thinking. First of all, I want you to notice uh, the phrases uh, that go throughout the passage of 66. Thus says the Lord, declares the Lord, God says, and the word of the Lord. Uh, they occur, those phrases occur 10 times within the space of 24 verses. That's an average of about 2.4 uh, verses for every time that, that those phrases come up. Now we've observed this before, but it's worth noting because God is emphasizing, as he's been doing, it seems, throughout Isaiah, he's, been, he's emphasizing that the scriptures are his word. And that comes, that's the bottom line, folks. Um, that's where we come to all of this. We don't know all the authors of all the books of the Bible. What we do know is that the scripture is God's word. That's, what the, that's what's repeated over and over again in the, in the scriptures. And Peter reminds us of this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, where we read, uh, also, and, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, or uh, some of your versions read, we have the prophetic word uh, made more sure, um, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now you'll notice that I quoted two different versions. One version says, the prophetic word confirmed. The other version reads, the prophetic word made more sure. And the difference should be clear to us. In the first passage, the prophetic word confirmed. All that Peter is saying is that in addition to the experience that he, James, and John had on the Mount of Transfiguration, the church has the prophetic word confirmed. We might ask how it was confirmed, and I believe that it was confirmed in its fulfillment by Christ. The transfiguration, Christ Christ fulfills that prophetic word in some way, and so it's confirmed to the apostles, and I believe that's what he meant. The other translation, the prophetic word made more sure, is a little bit, um, it can be used in a wrong way, I'll put it that way. because it's saying that um, the experience of Peter, James, and John um, is, uh, is less certain than the Word of God itself. And I cannot tell you how many times, how many sermons I have heard that use this passage to reinforce the idea that the Word of God is more certain than even the experience of the apostles. I will grant that the Word of God comes to us without experience, But the apostles had the experience of seeing the scripture fulfilled in Christ. Peter is not saying that the prophetic word was more certain than their experience. 
He was saying that they had the experience of Christ's transfiguration on the mountain. Therefore, the prophetic word was confirmed. This verse, uh, it should be translated, we have, the, the, we have confirmed to us the prophetic word. That's really all that he means, and we should take that uh, to heart. That's the first curious detail that we see in Isaiah chapter 66. The second one is really curious because it comes up, Not uh, I can't find it anywhere else in the scripture. And that's verse, uh, it's right at the end of uh, chapter 66. It's right 22, the end of 22 and 20 through to 24. So your offspring and your and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence. Now I want you to think about this. Why would the Lord either allow or have those who are in glory look upon those who perish. The image of the worm that does not die and the inextinguishable fire are images of Hades or hell. Why would God have us look at that? I want you to think about that and see if we have an answer in Isaiah. Now let's turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 66. It covers ground that has been covered before. First, God expresses his dissatisfaction with what is called what we what I will call will worship. Will worship is both external and God dishonoring. Second, the Lord gives encouragement to his people suffering at the hands of their own kinsmen. Third, the Lord warns both false professors and unbelieving mankind of impending judgment. And then fourth, the Lord promises a new heaven and a new earth to his faithful servants. Well, before we consider those four uh, points, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness to us. We pray now that as we think through this last chapter of Isaiah, that you will give us wisdom and insight, and that you will help us answer that question that that just haunts, haunts me as I go through um, this passage. And Father, we pray that you would... Give us your spirit and illumine our minds, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, um, will worship is unacceptable. Um, when God is looking at, the, at, when he's talking to Israel, he's looking at the temple as something that has been misused at that time. And in fact, it was misused even in the New Testament times. It's often misused in today's church where the building becomes something that is the central important thing. And, um, and what God is saying is that he does not, that's not the way he works. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being. I think the New Living Translation brings out the force of what God is saying in Isaiah 66.1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? 
could you build me such a resting place? And the answer is, well, no, they, they can't. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Acts 17, in him that is in God, we live and move and have our existence. God is the very atmosphere that we live in. He cannot be contained in a building. It's not that the temple that Solomon built was not the place God met with his people. It was. God does meet with his people in church buildings today. But the building is not the focus. God is. The temple of the Old and New Testaments was special because of what it represented to those whose heart was right with God. The saints of the Old and the New Testaments understood that God was not contained in a building. They knew that they could meet with him anywhere. However, there were those who believed that the temple was more important than God himself. They were people who worshiped God outwardly. And Isaiah mentioned them earlier in this book, in the book, uh, if you'll recall, in Isaiah 29, verse 13 and 14. The Lord says, Because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelously, and the wisdom of uh, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen and fourteen. The worship they offered God accorded to their own sinful plans and purposes. They worshipped God, but they worshipped other gods as well. So they were eclectic. They, they, you know, I had a friend in. Uh, we were going to church together in Denver, and uh, one night we were out for coffee, and and he pulled out this little amulet that he wore because we had both been Roman Catholics, and he had this little amulet, and he and he opened it up, and there was like a prayer to Mary or something in there. And I said, "What are you doing with that?" And he said, "Well, I'm covering all my bases." Well, that's kind of what. Uh, the Jews are doing. They're covering all the bases. They serve the living and true God, yes, but there's also the gods of, of the other lands, and they have to they have to appease them as well. So uh, they were they were scrupulous about the law, but it was an outward scrupulousness, and uh, their hearts were far from God. They they did not love their neighbors. They did not love God. In fact, they worshipped at the shrines of the false gods. They committed acts of immorality and the worship of false gods. Uh, look at the details that we see in verses 3 and um, I think it's 3 and 4 when he describes what they do. He says, but, but he who kills um, an ox is like someone who slays a, slays a man. In other words, killing the ox is the same as, as killing a human being. It made no difference to those people. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks the neck of a dog. Well, wow, that's not the way God wanted people to. They, they were totally um, insincere with their worship. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. Uh, and remember, swine are unclean. He who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol, and that's what they were they were doing. And as they have chosen, notice this, as they've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments, and I will bring on them what they dread. Because I called out, I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. 
and they did evil in my sight and chose that which I did not delight. Now I want you to notice how the Lord describes their practices. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their own abominations. That is what we call will worship. Worship that accords with man's will and not, not God's. The only acceptable manner in which to worship God is revealed in his word. Jesus describes it as worship in spirit and in truth. That is, worship which is done from the heart and the power of the Holy Spirit and in accordance with the truth, which is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. True worship takes place in his name and according to that revealed word of God in scripture. In addition, the heart needs to be right. And this is what the Lord says, because he says, he declares, but to this one, I will look. Who is he going to look to? The people who are doing everything externally? No. I, he says, I'm going to look to him who is humble and of, and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Someone who has communion with God and, and that communion is such that it causes that person to be humble and contrite of spirit. That's who the Lord is going to look to. That's who the Lord is going to listen to. It's proper for us to worship externally and together. We're commanded to do that. But we can also turn that into an idol. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, well, I go to church every Sunday. And that, but they treat God like that's the only place they meet him. So they treat God like he's an idol. They go to church building on a Sunday. They do what they have to do, and then they leave. And that's that's all they care about. That's all that matters to them. The rest of life means nothing. Oh, yeah, they may be moral people. They may be good people. But God is not does not even enter into their thoughts. We're supposed to be a people who even in our, even in the work that we do every day, we do it as unto the, unto God's glory. We work to please God even in our workplaces. We're not working, we're not working at our jobs to please our, our, the people who are over us. We're there to please our God, to do the best we can for Him. And if we are, then our employer should notice that we're doing a good job. But it's not, that's not our point. Our point is that we want to do everything we do, uh, so that God is honored. So that we could say when our employer said, you know, you're doing a great job. We can say, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, thank you for that. Um, my goal is to please the Lord my God in all of my work. And so I'm really glad that you, that you approve of it. But our focus is on the Lord. Our hearts belong to Him. Many pastors use the name of Jesus but they worship a God other than the God of Scripture. I heard a clip um, the, the other day, yesterday. I want to watch the whole movie, but if you want to watch it, it's on, uh, it's on Amazon Prime. It's called uh, The American Gospel, Christ Alone, and then there's a sequel to it called The American Gospel, Christ Crucified. And uh, they, they demonstrate how... False teachers are so, they're prominent, they're on TV, they're all over the world. I heard this clip from televangelist Kenneth Copeland. Claiming to preach from God's word, and that's what he claims, he looked out at the audience and he said, Money cometh to me. Money. Because that's all he wants. Stop it. 
Kenneth Copeland lives in a multi-million dollar mansion and owns his own airport on which he lands his private jet. The man is a mockery of Christianity. And everybody in the, every, every, I think every country I've been in have, has heard his name and has sent him money. Another pastor I heard claimed that the God of wrath was not the God he worshipped because the God of wrath is not the God of the Bible. What kind of a statement is that? Does he even read the Bible? Can he make, can you make that case that God's not a God of wrath? Well, I think you're going to see in this passage he is. I heard a female theologian claim that God uh, did not give up his son to be crucified, and if he did, such a God was like a cosmic child abuser. That's the kind of thing that is permeating our society. That's the kind of thing that's permeating even in the church. And we should be in prayer, and our hearts should be broken about those kinds of things. They are a replacement for the gospel. They are not the gospel. Well, how does this portion of Isaiah 66 um, help us to understand or relate to the last verse that says we're going to look upon those who perish? I don't know. So let's continue. Second, The second point. God gives words of encouragement to his faithful. Hear uh, the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Notice that, tremble. Um, why does God use that kind of language uh, to... Uh, why, why do we have the, the, the image of trembling before God's word? I'm not certain I have... The only answer, in fact, I know I don't have the only answer, but if you'll recall, anytime, anytime someone comes into the presence of God in the Scripture, how do they respond? Well, with fear and trembling. Um, you remember that when John was confronted in the book of Revelation, when John, when an angel, just an angel, came to John, what did he do? He fell down on his face, and he he was he was he was frightened until the angel said, "You know, it's okay." He fell down before Jesus too, and Jesus put his hand on him and said, "You know, don't fear." And that was a response to God's word. I think what we need to understand is that, I don't know about you, but if, if we stand before God, we are going to feel, uh, we, we're going to tremble, not because we're afraid of him, but because we reverence him so much. Um, and it is going to bring that. I know that that's going to happen to us when we stand before him. It's not going to be, oh, hey there, you're my great buddy. It's going to be, you're the living God, and we're going to respond by reverential worship, and we're going to fall down before him. But what God is saying in this passage is that you who tremble at his word, the idea is that the word of God should be something that causes us to respond to God in the same way as 
if we were standing right before him, because in reality we are standing in his presence right now. And his word comes to us freshly every day as we read. It's him speaking to us. And there should be an inner response on our part. On our part. I'm reading this book called, um, I don't know, it's something about the word of God and being sacramental. Um, like the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. Well, the Word of God is something that speaks to us of God being present with us, not only uh, providentially working in ways that we, we don't know about, but He's with us, He's present with us in His Word. And that Word should cause a reverential response on our part. And so God says, You who tremble at His Word, this is what he says. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may sing, see your joy. Um, but they will be put to shame. Um, an uproar of uh, from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Uh, before uh, she travailed and brought, well, that's another section, but right there, what is he saying? Well, the people in that day who were faithful to God uh, were being mocked by their own brothers who hated them. They weren't being shown brotherly love or neighborly love. They were being they were being shamed because they they uh, they believed in the Lord. Their hearts trembled at His word, and these other people, their hearts didn't tremble at His word, and. I know that uh, it doesn't happen in our church, but there are places where you go to church and people will say things like, oh, oh, you're taking, you know, you'll say something about the word of God and you'll, you'll tell them, well, this is what the Bible says. And they'll say, you're taking, you're taking the scripture too seriously. I've heard that. I've had that said to me. You're, you're going too far with this thing. And, um, and, and, they're like people who who hate you and exclude you uh, because you're trembling at the word of God. That happens today. It happened then. And God says, you know, God is saying to them, you know, don't worry about them um, because they are too. They're going to be judged. God is going to recompense. He's going to give recompense. He's going to give. He's going to bring vengeance upon those who harm his people. That's why we're told not to seek our own vengeance, because vengeance is the Lord's. When we seek our own vengeance, then we're doing God's work, and we're not allowed to do God's work. Now, the next section is a little tricky because of the way it says. It talks about um, uh, before she travailed, she brought forth. Um, before her pain, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard of such a thing, and who has seen such things? And the answer, uh, you know, can a land be born in one day? Uh, those are questions. Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Um, as soon as I am travailed, she also brought forth sons. The answer to those questions is that you don't, that's not the way it works, right? Um, before a woman travails, does she have a baby? Before she has pain, does she give birth to a boy? No. Um, um, who has ever seen anything like that? No one. Um, and can a land be born in one day? And the answer is no. Can a nation be brought forth at once? No. It can't. Shall I, shall I 
Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? God is the one who's doing all this. Um, or shall I, shall, shall I who gives delivery shut the womb? The answer is no. It's no to all those questions that God is asking. Be joyful with Jerusalem, in verse 10, and rejoice with her, for her. All you who, what? All you who love her, be exceedingly glad with her. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may seek and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. In other words, if I understand it correctly, God is saying there are these people who think that you know that they that they bring forth the Jerusalem. They're the ones who've done it all, and they haven't gone through any pain for any of this. It hasn't. It, it, they brought it about on their own, and God is saying, "No, they haven't. I'm I'm the one who does who's done it. I'm the one who grants the delivery. Be it's like be joyful in the Jerusalem that I've given you." Rejoice for that one, all of you who love her. Um, and Jerusalem here is being used, I think, both literally and, and metaphorically, because it goes beyond just Jerusalem is about the people. It's not about a city, though the city is used for uh, 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 for purposes of metaphorically uh, talking about the people. But be glad with her. Um, all you who mourn over her. The, the city is in trouble. N not because the city walls have done something wrong. The city's in trouble because people living in that city, the people of supposedly, supposed people of God, have been doing things that are wrong. And he's telling them to stop. He's telling them to be joyful over the Jerusalem that, that I rejoice in. Rejoice in the one... That, that you who who you love the people that you love the people who are are the people of God the ones who tremble at God's word because you can nurse be nursed and nourished by those people like a mother nourishes her children um, at at her bosom and so God says and again we see you see how many times it says says the Lord says your God for thus says the Lord behold. I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. You shall be nourished. You who? You, the people in Jerusalem and in Judah that, that tremble at God's word. You shall be nursed. You shall be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. You, as one whom his mother comforts, I will comfort you. And you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The city? Well, maybe the city, but it's more than the city. It's the people who tremble at God's word. Then you shall see this, and your heart shall be glad, and your bones shall flourish like the new grass, that the hand of the Lord um, shall be made known to his servants. The people of God who tremble at God's word are going to see God, God's work. Now, I believe the whole world is going to see God's work and God's glory, but I believe we need to understand that as we tremble at the Word of God, that is, as we approach the Word of God reverentially, just as we approach God Himself, if our hearts are in it, if we are committed to loving Him, then I believe that we're going to be nourished, as He says here. He will comfort us. 
He will, he will, he will nurse us and uh, we'll be nursed by the word of God and fed and given strength. And we will see his, we will see um, the hand of the Lord. It will be made known to us. It, it will in different things, in different ways. And one day it will finally come be known to us as we see it finally fulfilled at the great consummation. But do we not see uh, the Lord's work in our lives each and every day? I was just thinking this morning as I was taking a shower, um, because I have uh, um, the pain in my hip is is uh, is seriously increasing, and um, and I was thinking this morning as I was taking a shower, and I and I had to say, you know what, God, the pain the pain does one thing that I. Uh, while I don't like the pain and it hurts really bad, it does one thing for me. It um, reminds me of how gracious you have been in my life. Um, God spared my life and my wife's life on more than one occasion because I was drunk. When we were newlyweds, we were up in the mountains with my friend, uh, Mike Pirro, and, and and I was drunk, and I and I couldn't even see the road, and I was driving, and the only thing I remember from that night to this day is seeing my speedometer red, and red meant I was going over seventy miles an hour. I was coming down a canyon road where people got killed. In fact, my cousin's my cousin's cousin was killed in an auto accident because they're. Jeep went off the road and they found her body in the river several days later. Um, but God delivered delivered my friend Diana and I um, in that time. I can't forget that. I remember driving home one night from work in a company truck and uh, I was I drove the man I worked with home and I didn't the next day I didn't remember driving him home. I didn't even know where my car was. I was in a company truck. Um, I didn't remember driving home except for glimpses here and there. God delivered me from causing harm, not only to myself, but to other people. And so when I got knocked off that airplane hangar and I broke my hip in 1971, that's the reason I have the problem I have now. And I look back at that and I think of the, and the pain reminds me it reminds me of how gracious God has been to me in my life. Have I seen God work? Yes, I have. And I'm so thankful for it because he delivered, he delivered me. And in delivering me, he delivered, he delivered my wife from, he delivered my wife from me. Not that I'm perfect, but I'm not that way anymore. And so when we tremble before God's word, we got to remember that God is with us always. And, um, and um, he is the one who gives us comfort in the midst of pain. He's the one who gives us comfort in the midst of sorrow. He's the one who makes himself known to his servants. Well, how does looking on those, those kinds of things, how does that relate to looking on those who perish that comes up at the end of the chapter? Remember the question I asked you? I'm asking you again. How does this portion relate to that to that? image that we see at the end of Isaiah 66. Well, I don't know, so we'll continue. Thirdly, God warns the hypocrites and unbelievers. 
in verse um, uh, verses um, all like four and five and verse sixteen and seventeen. Um, well, uh, yeah, right in there. But he shall be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and his sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the, to the gardens following one in the center who came to, who came, who, who eats swine's flesh, the detestable things, they shall come to an end altogether. This, all those verses relate to God's judgment. Notice how he's going to come with, or come in fire, or you could render it with fire too. He's going to come and render his anger with fury. Those images are there to show us that God, that God is not only a God of love, he's a God of wrath. He will execute judgment by fire. His sword will be on all flesh and, and the slain by the Lord will be, they're going to be slain by the Lord. It's going to be many. Now those, he mentions those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, um, following one in the center. What he's talking, he's not talking about going into the gardens of Jerusalem. He's talking about those who go into the gardens, they sanctify and purify themselves for the purposes of idolatry. That's why it's related to swine's flesh. They go, they go in and they, they eat swine's flesh. Detestable things and mice. Those are things, you know, God doesn't want people to partake of those things. They're unclean. And so they're going to all come together, come to an end. What you see there is the wrath of God. And this isn't the only place you read it. You read about it as well in the New Testament. Look at what Paul says when the Lord returns. He's going to return and there's going to be a judgment and it's going to be a judgment by fire. And, um, and people are going to going to perish in an eternal fire. Well, look at the lake of fire in Revelation chapter twenty one, and also I think it's in chapter nineteen or twenty, where God throws the devil and all his cohorts into a to the lake of fire that burns for eternity. Now, <clears throat> a lot of people don't like the doctrine of an eternal hell. Um, and to be honest, I, I struggle with that too. But the point is, is that what God says or not? Um, some people have denied hell because they couldn't deal with it in their own minds. Many conservative theologians have come to the place where they, they see either that everybody eventually is saved, or that people who die they may go they may perish in hell for a while, but then they are annihilated for eternity, and they don't they don't exist in torment forever. You know, um, I I struggle with that concept too. I think that a lot of us do. I mean, I don't I don't gloat over people who are going to perish. That doesn't make me happy. I don't really want to see that happen to anyone. 
But either God has said it, and it's true, or he hasn't said it, and uh, we're called upon to have faith in what he says. He tells us over and over that that people who reject him, people who people whose heart is not with him, are people who will perish eternally. Well, how does looking on those verses relate to looking upon those who perish at this point? Um, I don't know. But maybe the last point will help answer the question. Fourthly, the Lord promises a new heaven and a new earth to his faithful. The Lord declares, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming together. All na- no, Notice this. All nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, to Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Yoran, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my of my heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will now notice they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all of your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and leaders, on mules and camels to my holy mountain. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Now notice this. I will also take some of them, that is of the nations, for priests and Levites. What do we what do we learn from that? We learned that people from every nation, kindred and tongue, are going to declare the glory of God. Those place names, those are just the remotest places for me. If you were standing in and let's say you were standing in Jerusalem and uh, somebody said, Well, you know, Tarshish, you would probably think of the furthest point west that you know of. You know, Put Lud, Meshach, Meshach, I think is up to the north, Rosh, uh, Tubal, and Yavin. When you think about these places, I think what's being described is if you look around from Jerusalem, the furthest places you can think of, people are going to come from there. In other words, the nations are going to come to God. It's not just Jewish people. It's not just, it's not just those who uh, are in the old covenant relationship with God. It's all peoples. It's all people who are in a new covenant relationship because of Jesus Christ. And and, it, and they will bring your brethren, that is the Jewish brethren, from all the nations. They're going to bring them as a grain offering to God. Um, I'm not sure. I have to... There's so many things I have... To, I, I, I don't understand as clearly as I ought... Um, but I'm just going to tell you what I think, because that is that when um, when these nations bring the brethren of the Jews from all the nations as a grain offering, it's these Gentiles who are bringing the Jews who've been converted to Christ with them when they when they go. Um, and I think there's going to be my personal opinion is that God is going to there's going to be um, there's going to be 
before the new heaven and new earth come, before the end actually comes, I believe that, that Israel as a nation is going to respond, is going to respond in a great, all Jews are going to respond to Christ like we've never seen before. Um, there's going to be, there's going to be, um, an influx of, of Jews who, be, who come to faith in Christ. And, um, and you see that at least in a glimpse when you go to Israel now, you see Jews who are coming to faith in Christ all the time. And there are churches over there. That's what I think is happening, that, that God is bringing his own people from the nations. And, and not all of them are going to Israel because they are, uh, converted to Christ, but many of them are converted to Christ. And many Jews in the nation of Israel, they are being converted to Christ too. And so all these nations, I think what you have here is a picture of the old, of the new heaven and the new earth is that all peoples from every nation, kindred and tongue, they are going to come, Jews included, they're going to come and they're going to give glory to God. And some of these men, some of these people, some of these men who come from all these nations, they're going to be just like the Israelites. There's going to be priests and Levites from them. I'm not sure what all that means, but there's, Priests and Levites are servants of the Lord. That, that's really what they are. They're the, the servants, the Levites served in the temple, yes, but they were also the Old Testament deacons. They collected uh, offerings for the poor. And so part of the, our understanding of, of deacons in the New Testament is based on the Levites. And so, yeah, God's going to use people who were not Jews to serve him in those significant ways. And so God goes on, for just as the new heaven and the new earth which I make will, will endure before me. So your offering and your name will endure, and it shall be from new moon to new Sabbath. And then we go on to that verse that's so hard to understand. Can you picture in your mind's eye the new heaven and the new earth that God describes will be in glorified bodies, as Paul says, you know, not all of us will sleep, that is, not all of us will die, but in a moment, in the tweaking of an eye, uh, the dead will be raised in Christ, and we will be transformed, we will be, we will be translated, and we will have a glorified body. John says, we don't know what it will be like, uh, to be there, but we know this, that when we see him, that is when we see Jesus, we will be like him. Um, not like him in terms of he's God and man, but like him in, in the fact that we'll have a new uh, glorified body. And um, I don't know what all that will entail, um, but it's the hope that we have set before us that when Christ returns and we join him, we will be made like him. Well, how does that help us answer the question that I have? That from Sabbath to Sabbath, from new moon to new moon, all mankind will come and bow down before God, and then they also go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. Why would God have us in the new heavens and new earth look upon those who have perished? Well, let me try to give you 
three possibilities. First of all, what is being described here is Hades or hell. We read in Mark 9, 47 and 48, if, and if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Isaiah 131. And the strong man will become tender. His work also will spark. Thus they shall both burn together and there will be none to quench them. Isaiah 14.11. Your pomp and music and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots or worms are spread out as your as your bed beneath, and worms are your covering. Um, Daniel twelve two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Matthew three twelve. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly or th yeah, thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, a clue to an answer is given in the context. The faithful servants of God have always had to look upon the wicked deeds of hypocrites and unbelievers. In fact, they are usually the ones most honored. They usually have prominent places in the public square. Their opinions usually win the day because it seems that everyone listens to them no matter how wrong they are. So in this chapter, or in the chapter, it seems clear to me that the, the faithful have had to endure this. They've had to endure that as they had their hearts right with God. They've had to endure those whose hearts weren't, weren't right with God. And we endure this same kind of thing today. <clears throat> so one reason may be that we will finally see the end of those who have so dishonored God. Think about Psalm, um, Psalm 73. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a psalm that, that will help us maybe understand somewhat. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now notice, Israel is not just Israel the nation, but it's those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there, is, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their, eyes bul their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart uh, run riot. They mock and wickedly spread speak of oppression. They speak from on high. And it goes on and on. And then he said, then he says, uh, if I had said I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, this is Psalm 73, verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. 
how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when, when aroused, thou wilt despise them forever. So what the psalmist is saying is, I think about how things are. You know, there are these we have the people of God who are right with God because their hearts are right with God. But we also have people in our midst, the tares, we might call them. You know, we're the wheat, they're the tares. That, that they're just horrible people and they prosper and everybody listens to them and they don't listen to God. But what, is this, what, is, what does the psalmist say? He says, I, really, I was bothered by all of this until, until... I pondered their end. The last verse, the last verses of the Psalm of Psalm seventy-three say, "For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works." It's the last part of the psalm. It's the, the psalm where he says, I looked at their end, that, uh, that provides another reason for God having us look upon those who perish. It will remind us that we too, like them, would have perished apart from the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Unto good works. So then we are to be, the, we are what we are by grace. And by looking upon those who perish, what can I say? If that doesn't, if that doesn't show us the awesome grace of God, nothing, nothing will. Because we're no different from them apart from the grace of God. So there are a couple of, those are just a couple thoughts that we might that might answer the question of why Isaiah ends the way it does. But I believe that there's at least one more thought that we might think about, and it's derived from the Word of God. In Luke 19, Jesus had a confrontation with the Pharisees. They wanted Jesus to rebuke his disciples for what they were saying. And Jesus responded, if, if his disciples didn't testify about him, the very stones would cry out. And the section following has Jesus standing near Jerusalem. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, was he weeping over the walls or the buildings in there? No. He was weeping over Jerusalem as the city held its the people of Jerusalem. He wept over them. Because he says in verse 42 of Luke 19, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a, blank, a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you in they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your vision so he's talking about the city it's going to be destroyed but it's the city that's that 
that holds the people, the people inside are going to be destroyed. And the walls of Jerusalem, which was their security, are going to come down. And the city that they trust in and the temple that they trust in are going to be destroyed. And there's not going to be anything there anymore. So the destruction of Jerusalem serves as a glimpse into the final days when the earth will be ravished and judgment will come. Notice though, Jesus wept over the city. He wept over it. What do we learn from this? Well, possibly that we too should have compassion on those who are perishing. Judgment will come. We know their end. But there is a way to escape the hell that the scripture so often describes. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be delivered from the wrath to come. Beloved, hell is real. No matter what anybody tells us, the Bible says that it's real. We might think about weeping in prayer for those who are perishing. We might think about asking him, our God, our Lord, to be gracious to them as he has been to us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness. We, we do pray that as we've gone through Isaiah, that it's been an, both an encouragement to us, a challenge, it's been a challenge, I know, to me, um, but it's also served many times as a warning to us. And I believe the warning is there to keep us faithful. And the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. He warns the church to stay near to Christ, to keep our hearts, to keep our hearts right before God. It's not that God, it's when we think of God working in us, you got to remember Philippians. God is at work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He works in us, but we will to do his good pleasure. Both are happening at the same time. Our part is to work according to his good pleasure, to do those things that please him or to keep our heart proper before him. And he's the one who will do the work so that he gets all the glory. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to think on these things. Thank you for the book of Isaiah. Thank you for what we've learned. Thank you for the questions that's probably, that probably have been raised in our thoughts. And um, But thank you most of all because as we think about Isaiah, we are brought to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well,